We're going to be picking up on the section in Romans chapter 5. We'll be starting at verse 6. Okay, if you have the one from last week, then Mike pointed out an error to me yesterday. Um, under the section on God gave his son, the first one, number one there, should read, many do not realize that John 3.16 and should be is not a standalone. Not was left out of that, and it definitely changes the meaning of that sentence. So if you're taking notes... Please make that correction. Uh, the new ones have that correction already on them. So, Okay, so we'll start, as I said, reading Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So looking at uh, this set of verses, of course, in the context of the lesson that we started, um, was about God's plan to save man. So Paul reminds us here that Christ died for the ungodly. And of course, he's talking about us. He's talking about all mankind. He's talking about the ones who lived before Christ came, and he's talking about those who live now. Um, when we read the Old Testament, we understand it tells us that they offered sacrifices for their sins on a regular basis, but it also says that those sacrifices were not able to forgive sins. And so the sins were rolled forward each year is how it is worded. So under the Old Testament law, you could get that temporary release of your sins, I guess is the way to word it, but forgiveness for your sins was not really granted until Christ came and died. And then for us who live now after Christ, then we can receive the remission of the sins without that waiting period that the Israelites had. We understand that when Christ died, we really had no power as mankind at that time, and we really have no power even today to extricate ourselves from sin. Sin is something that we all suffer from. We are all weak in those areas. We all have shortcomings. We all have areas where we're subject to temptation. That's called being human. We weren't made perfect in that aspect. God knew when he created us that we were going to sin, 
that was the reason for this plan of salvation that he began even before our time to allow us a method of getting reconciliation with him and forgiveness for those sins. We were really without knowledge of God. And it depends on how you look at this aspect, but if you look at the time of the Christ, those who were Gentiles did not have the blessing that the Israelites had. They did not have the law of Moses. They did not understand really what God was asking for in that vein. We now have something greater. One greater than Moses has come. A law greater than the law of Moses has come. And we now understand that and we have that knowledge. But even with that knowledge, we still sin. (coughs) We were enslaved by sin. And the Bible talks about the idea of being, sin being a master. If we're involved in sin, then we are enslaved to sin. Some things are obvious. We can look at things like drug abuse, alcoholism, things like that are obvious to us that these people are enslaved in the sin that they're participating in. But it's also true for a lot of other things. If someone who has fallen into a bad habit, then are they not enslaved to that habit? We've all talked about the idea of of being at worship service. We've all mentioned the fact that when we miss a worship service, we don't feel quite right, do we? But when we miss four, five, ten, twenty, then it no longer bothers us, does it? We don't realize it, but we've been enslaved to that sin. So it's common today, too. We commit sin striving for happiness that we can't obtain. God being the creator, he knows what is good for us. He knows ultimately what will make us happy. And he gives us that information in the scriptures. And oftentimes people are in sin looking for that happiness, but they're never going to attain it. Because you can't really truly attain happiness outside of Christ. We were enemies of God because of the sin that we had. God cannot be associated with sin. God cannot condone sin. We as Christians cannot condone sin. We may have family members. We may have friends. We may have neighbors who are involved in some type of sin in their life. But we cannot approve of that sin. We cannot condone that sin. When we read Romans chapter 1, it talks about the fact that many were lost at that time because of homosexuality. And when we read the last verse of the chapter, it tells us that if we give our approval to their sin, we then are as guilty of that sin as they are. We cannot encourage others to be lost. We cannot encourage others to lose their soul. So if someone's involved in sin, we cannot encourage that sin. We can't give our approval to that sin. We're supposed to be the opposite. We're supposed to be trying to get them out of that sin. He goes on in the next verse, talks about um, 
One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. I don't know about you, I've read that verse numerous times and I've never really got that into my mind quite straight. I don't really understand exactly what it was trying to say because to me it seems reversed. But looking through that, studying that for this lesson, the best explanation I could come up with, it talks about a righteous man being one who only does what justice requires, and selfishly so. One who only does to others what justice demands. In other words, when he's talking about a righteous man here, he's talking about someone who's going to meet the law, but never going any further. You know, Christ encourages, you know, if someone asks you to go a mile, then go two. This is the person that's going to go one mile and stop and say, that's all I have to do. I'm quitting here. When he talks about a good man, it says one who will not only do what justice demands, but will all go beyond this and do what love, mercy, and kindness require. So this is the person that's not going to walk that one mile, but he's going to walk the second mile and maybe a third or a fourth. This is a person that's going to do the things that are good for you, not because God requires him to do it, but because he wants to. He's going to do it for love of mankind. But then when we get out there, it's a lot harder not to do. Um, right. Maybe not in such a, a, a bland way. Like we're not going to look at someone who is accused of committing murder and say, well, that murder was fine. They, they could do that. That's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But especially when we're talking to somebody who's looking for reassurance or comfort that something they did wrong was okay. Right. We want to try to find a way to help them justify it because we want them to feel better or because we want them to be able to talk to us. And so it's, it's really tempting to be like, well, you know, that wasn't really a lie. You don't have to feel bad about that because you had your reasons. Or, you know, well, of course you were angry and you lost your temper. Like, that just happens. That's not a big deal. Um, particularly, I think, among our Christian brothers and sisters, it's really hard for us to look someone in the eye and say, no, actually, that was wrong. I can't make you feel better about that because you shouldn't have done it. Right. Um, we, we have a hard time doing that, and we have a hard time accepting that, too. When we, sometimes when we come to our, our Christian brothers and sisters and say, well, this thing happened, you know, we kind of want them to say, it's okay, you're a good person. Uh, but sometimes we need them to say, yeah, that was wrong. You, you shouldn't have done that. You need to be sure that you don't do that again. That's true. As we talked before, is, I mean, the devil's not necessarily going to come to you with a great sin because as a Christian, he knows you're not going to commit a great sin. Uh, but he's going to come to you with something that's more subtle. And we have that problem that we we feel bad when we have to correct someone for something. Um, and... It's an issue, really, I think, for everybody. Um, but those things we, we can't do. Um, for instance, if you, maybe if you have a friend who's getting divorced and remarried, but you know that divorce is not a scriptural divorce, can you congratulate them on that marriage? You know that's sin. You know ultimately what that's going to do to them. And other things. It's, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's when they'll use misuse that Bible verse that they all know. Judge not, judge not. Yeah, I'll get that a lot. Judge, it's, I've, gotten, I've gotten to where uh, if I get that one, I'll also say, have you read the rest of that chapter? <laughs> you know, judge not that we be not judged, then they stop. But that's, if you read the old chapter, that's not in context. But 
we do need to correct, we need to correct one another. If you're doing something wrong, a sin, would you not want a brother or sister to come to you and correct you? I would think all of us would say yes, would we not? So why do we have such a difficult time going to another brother and sister and correcting them? We know how we would feel. We would want someone to let us know we're wrong. Do we not think that other brother or sister would want someone to tell them? Why are we so hesitant to do that? Okay, moving on. Um, talks about here in the verse that Christ died for sinners, neither righteous nor good. We were enemies of God, but the Father and Son both exhibit their love and mercy. We go back and read the scriptures, we understand that Christ suffered horribly both before and during the crucifixion to offer salvation to mankind. We're discussing the fact that would someone die for a righteous man? Would someone die for a good man? Christ died for those who hated him. Hard to believe, isn't it? Hard for us to understand as humans. Christ literally died for those who hated him and put him on the cross. So that ultimately they could be forgiven if they were to be obedient. And hard as it is to believe, with all the print we have, with all the technology that we have to get the word out, there are still those today who hate Christ. Never met him, never knew anything really about him, but still hate him. And the reason being is because he demands obedience. If I obey Christ, then I've got to give up some things in my life that I really, really want to do. And because of that, resentment and hatred grows. And they deny Christ, they deny God. But Christ is still there for them if they were to turn. Even if we attempt to live in an upright manner apart from Christ, we remain sinners. Christ paid the price that we could never pay. We look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We all commit sin. And because of that, we all need salvation. Moving along in verse 8, we see that Christ sets the ultimate example for mankind. He freely gives everything for those who reviled and hated him. We must emulate his example each and every day. We're going to run across people who aren't friendly to us. We're going to run across people that don't like us because we're members of the church. But yet, each and every day, we have to set the example for Christ. We cannot lead others into salvation if we act as they do. The essence of such love is giving. The degree of love can be measured partly by the cost of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness of the beneficiary. As we said, Christ's gift was the ultimate, right? 
the cost of the giver his life the worthiness of the beneficiary those are the ones who hung him up there to die God's love in this act was unique. In giving his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything to those who deserve nothing from him but judgment. We look at verse 9, it tells us that we're justified by his blood. If we flip over to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Christ gave his blood for us. Gave his life for us. It tells us that we shall be saved from wrath through him. We no longer stand as God's enemies because of his sacrifice. We can be forgiven for the sins we commit regardless of what they may be. Wrath is an attribute of God just as love is. A lot of times we try to overlook that. We think about God's love but we never think about God's wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is an old English word defined as a deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as a stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation is righteous anger aroused by injustice and, injustice and baseness. God's wrath. Do we really want God's deep, intense anger Unfortunately, we don't truly understand the enormity of sin. How many have been lost through false religion due to someone's desire to place their own wants and needs above God? How many children have lost their lives due to one court decision on abortion? When we think about the enormity of sin, the suffering of sin is far-reaching. Moving on to our next section, Hebrews, we look at chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Yes. Sorry, could you do the, the blanks for This is such sacrificial love. Let me go back here. I'm sorry. No. This is what I had in mind there. For we do not understand the enormity of sin, which we just discussed, I guess. And the essence, where did I have that? Uh, the essence of love is giving. So giving and enormity. Okay, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it habits some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we look at these, we tend to kind of overlook this 
more reading because it's, it doesn't mean as much to us, I guess, today as it would have at the time that this was written. Those who have their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus should live in a manner that honors God. The set of scriptures uses the image of the temple or tabernacle to show how the Christian is qualified to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This privilege once reserved to the high priest is now offered to all of God's children due to Christ's sacrifice. We look back at the Old Testament, we look at the tabernacle, we look at the temple. There were priests who served the people, and then there was the high priest. And when you look at the temple, the tabernacle, there was always a veil between the holiest place and the holy place. No one was entered to go into the holiest place except the high priest, and only once a year. The high priest could go into the presence of God at that one time of the year and offer sacrifice for the people. There was always a barrier between the people and God. But when Christ died, it talks about the veil being rent. It's symbolic. The veil was actually torn. But we understand now that barrier that existed between God and his people is no longer there. We can approach God. We are the priest. When you pray to God, it is directly. You do not have to have a priest to intercede for you. You do not have to have a high priest which goes in the presence of God once a year because of your sins. As a Christian, you can pray for your sins now and be forgiven of your sins now if you're truly repentant. To us, we take that for granted because it's everyday occurrence for us. To the people at this time, it was astounding. The idea that a common man could be in the presence of God. Yes. Right. That's one thing we probably have difficulty with. In our lives, the, the duties we have at work, all the things we have to do at home, it's oftentimes difficult for us to stop and think that our prayer should be without ceasing. We get so busy in our lives, we take time out for that. And we mess up so much. Mm -hmm. yeah. We probably have more leisure time in this country than any other country in the world, but yet we still can't find time to stop and pray. Yes. Yes. Good point. Christ our highest priest is there continually in God's presence. In his history, we, we talk about this, we call it a curtain. But reading on this, this thing was thick. It took dozens of priests to remove that and take that out and clean that because it was so heavy, so thick. But yet it ripped. Okay, uh, moving along. Through submission to Christ, we can draw near with a true heart and fullness, full assurance of faith. In verse 22, a repentant believer can proceed with confidence. There's no longer any reason for doubting our salvation. 
We know that Christ has opened the way for us to enter the Holy of Holies. Unfortunately, we often meet members of denominations who are more confident in their salvation than members of the church. The Bible tells us that he's given us the keys of the kingdom. He has given us the things that the prophets prayed for, begged for, and couldn't have. But yet we're still not sure if we're going to have it. So why are we not more confident? The verse tells us that we can be. The pure water mentioned in this verse refers to one being, one's sins being removed at the time of baptism. If they were removed by faith alone, there would be no need here to mention water. As Christians, this purity is not temporary as under the Mosaic law, since Christ continues to cleanse us by his blood. 1 John 1 and 7 says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not cleansed, not will cleansed, but cleanses a continual thing. If we're doing the best that we can, Christ cleanses us from all sin, all sin day by day. The relationship that we build with God as obedient Christians should be one based on trust in verse 23 and on service, verses 24 and 25. So we come down to the, I guess, the question of the lesson here. We're talking about God's plan of salvation. But when we're talking about us, do we trust God? We know who God is. We know who Christ is, right? Do we trust them? Do we trust God? Do we trust the word of God? We believe who Christ is, the Messiah. Come for the salvation of our sins, but do we trust him? When the scriptures say he removes our sins, do we really believe him? Do we believe that we are truly saved or do we have doubts? So the big question is, if we have doubts, what do we need to work on to remove their doubts? If we have doubt about our salvation, there's a reason for that. And if there's a reason for that, we need to identify it and we need to correct it. Looking at this, as we discuss God's plan for salvation, we must emphasize that our salvation is only possible because God loved us enough to provide the Savior, Jesus Christ. We talked about John 3.16. We must emphasize when we talk about this that God so loved the world. It's a discussion about God's love. As with any scripture, we don't try to open this to our own private interpretation when we get to this verse. All scripture must be taken in context. And we talked about the fact that this verse is between two different discussions regarding baptism. When we read the chapter of John 3. We want to make sure that we don't become false teachers. We need to take everything in its context and understand that it must agree with that context and it must agree with the Bible as a whole. 
James tells us chapter 2 and 3 that for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3 and verse 1. I don't tell you that to discourage you from becoming a teacher. But remember, the Bible says that we are all priests. We are all teachers. Whether you're standing up here or you're sitting there, if you're a Christian, you're a teacher. We often get nervous about the idea of teaching. I don't want to teach that class or I don't want to teach this class. You talk about to someone about teaching the adult class and they go, oh, no, 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 no. I'll be honest, I would rather teach the adult class than any other class in this building. I can teach you what I've studied and I can learn from you with your comments. That's not necessarily true when I teach some of the younger ages. <laughs> We're supposed to edify one another. We're supposed to build each other up in Christ. That's why we have Bible classes. If we were just going to preach to you, then there's no need for Bible classes, is there? This is a time that we share to discuss with one another, to learn from one another, insights from one another. You may have read things that I haven't read yet. I may have read things in my study that you haven't read yet. That's the purpose of this. We must willingly submit to his plan if we desire to be saved, but our submission cannot be on our own terms. We must do as God decrees. God offers salvation, but since it is a gift from God, we have to agree to and abide by his conditions. God gave the promised land to the Israelites, but he also told them that they only had that land as long as they were obedient to him. And when they fell away, they were taken away in slavery. Yes, there are gifts from God, but God expects our obedience. We have a wonderful gift in this country with the freedom and religion that we talk about. But if we don't do that in obedience with God's wishes, that can be taken away from us. So we need to be sure that we do things on God's terms and not on our terms. And that's all I have for the lesson this morning. Are there any questions or comments that we should go over? You know, Revelation 7 9 says that it was a number too great to, to count that was around the throne. And that should give us confidence that you were saved because, you know, it's not 144,000 like it was in the nation. Number no one can count. Right. So, you know, that should give us confidence to evangelize. Yes, the, the number there shows us what what's going to happen in the future in the salvation of mankind. And we also need to understand, like we talked about before, in order to be saved, we do not have to be perfect. God does not expect us to be perfect. But he expects us to try. Any more comments? All right. Well, I thank you for your attention and your participation. And we will stop a couple of minutes early.